0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Filippo De Chirico, and I'm the host for today's episode. Our guest today is Professor Daniel McFarlane, who teaches at the School of Environment, Geography, and Sustainability at Western Michigan University, and we're going to talk about his new book, Natural Allies, Environment, Energy, and the History of U.S.-Canada Relations, out for McGill. Queen's University Press in 2023. Daniel, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Before we delve into the chapters of Natural Lies, could you tell us something about yourself and how you came to write
1: it? Sure. Um, So I'm an associate professor in the School of Environment, Geography and Sustainability at Western Michigan University. So I teach environmental and water policy, sustainability, climate change, things like that. But my actual PhD is in environmental history and for what it's worth I'm Canadian and did all my schooling in Canada and now now I teach in the United States which is partly what informs this book you know that, that that history of of the two sides but the book is very much an outgrowth of the previous books I've written or edited because I uh the very first book I did based on my PhD dissertation was on the history of the St. Lawrence Seaway and power project so a joint project between the US and Canada that led to a book on the joint US Canadian manipulation of Niagara Falls for energy as well as to try to retain and reshape the falls for aesthetic beauty. And then along with that, I had co-edited books on the history of US-Canada border waters and on another book on the International Joint Commission, which of course is linked with US-Canada borders border waters as well. So all of my work basically up to this point had been, you know, different shades of the US and Canada. Uh, dealing with environmental diplomacy or sharing resources. So al- along the way, it had occurred to me that U.S.-Canadian diplomacy and relations wasn't just about environment and energy. Sometimes that that was a pretty constant factor, and one could argue, in some respects, maybe even the most important constant in Canada-U.S. relations, but it's a, f- a factor that was usually ignored by most scholars of Canada-U.S. relations, which tended to be Canadians, Another uh, sort of hole in the scholarship is that Americans basically ignore Canada, even though Canada, by many metrics, has long been the most important ally of the United States, both from a trade uh, and economic perspective, from security, sharing the border. So those were some of the different motivations. So just sort of with my past work, seeing you could write an entire history of Canada-U.S. relations by writing it through energy and environment. So I published a book chapter sort of uh, a few years ago, sort of outlining that idea as sort of a a survey or an attempt to see if that would fly, and then it seemed to. So that motivated me to during the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, I was on sabbatical, with a lot of my plans for travel and research quashed as I had to stay home and you know um, te- teach several children <laughs> in the living room while I was uh, while I was on sabbatical. Um, it also helped when I was a postdoc quite a while ago now, in 2012, I had created a course on the history of Canada-US relations, which was, as I started to think about this book a decade later, or less than a decade later, but not too far off, that course sort of served as the spine or the background for um, what that book could look like. So I went and found all my lecture notes and then started working on researching both primary and secondary sources to fill it in. So what I ended up producing is the sort of survey history of Canada-U.S. environmental and energy relations, starting with Canadian Confederation um, covering up to the present. And so the book does move fairly chronologically, but also alternates with sort of thematic chapters. So water is one of the most important factors. So there's several chapters that focus on water. And I mean, if I just sort of want to take a bite off right now, maybe of the, the period from Confederation up to 1945, as if A few key themes. Uh, Part of what I'm arguing is that uh, a lot, most of early Canada-U.S. relations was about environmental factors. Maybe not always about environmental protection, and that's one of the points of this book: is uh, a lot of uh, environmental diplomacy is framed at sort of post-70s environmental protection to the United Nations. And I'm arguing that anything, any diplomacy or relations that has to do with environment, whether it's protection or degradation should be considered environmental diplomacy. So the first few decades of Canada-U.S. relations are mostly about fish, for example, fish, seals, and things like that. So Canada cuts its diplomatic teeth as an independent country negotiating fish, uh, protection of seals, uh, protection of birds, uh, protection of border waters, um, and and things like that. So this is, uh, I contend, too, that the fact that those all require more local knowledge to negotiate over fish stocks on the East Coast or uh, a river in the Great Lakes requires, especially, uh, you know, we're talking late 19th, early 20th centuries, communications and transportation technology isn't near what it would be later. So for Britain, still, which still at the time holds a lot of the policy reins for Canada's foreign policy, doesn't really have the ability to know what's going on in terms of the materiality of, of fish and water and hydroelectricity. So the fact that is dealing with natural resources actually allows it to gain its independence, I would argue, in, in foreign policy and relations with the United States uh, much quicker. And then part of the contention is dealing with natural resources is also well, one of the main contributing factors for, for why Canada and the U.S. develop what we see, comparatively speaking, on the global scale as a very cooperative, integrated relationship. So, um, and part of that is just factors such as you're dealing with something at the Great Lakes, it's not a river that crosses a border, as we see with the U.S. and Mexico, where it's in the interest of one country to sort of one-up the other and using that resource. A lot of these resources um, tend to be better used or exploited if it's cooperatively done. So I guess I argue that dealing with environment and energy factors is, is one of the main reasons that the Canada-U.S. relationship has, has been so, so cooperative. Can
0: you walk us through the highlights of this relationship in its early stages
1: so some of the highlights within this period um would be uh, the boundary, Wa- boundary waters treaty in 1909 which creates the international joint commission which as i mentioned is something i previously edited a, a book about um, around the time of the boundary waters treaty in 1909 there's a-, a whole spate of uh fish bird and seal conservation treaties not all of them are successful, but some are. And a lot of these agreements, along with the trail smelter and then other things we can talk about later on, set up the Canada-U.S. relationship as very much a trendsetter in international environmental law and governance. So on the one hand, these are two countries that have over 50 different types of international agreements concerning resources and the environment. Um, Two countries that have mobilized their resources and traded more than any other two countries in the world. So they've contributed in that way, but that of course has a flip side, which is that arguably no two countries have had a bigger environmental impact either in their uh, bilateral uh, relationship. Um, any border water, which there's a huge amount of for Canada, the US, as you know, this is also framed as the world's longest border. So there's a whole host of ecosystems that cross the border. The Great Lakes are the Great Lake system is 20% of the world's surface freshwater. So, I mean, there's more water in the Great Lakes than basically the rest of the United States <laughs> or Canada. So this is a, pr- a pretty significant resource. So the Boundary Waters Treaty is, is instituted to apply to the Great Lakes as well as other border waters, east, west, and north. So it creates this bilateral body, the IJC, which is unique in that it's, a, it's supposed to be this neutral body in which both countries have appointees on it, and then it's supposed to act in a, um, in a neutral fashion in the best interests of the resource or in some ways exploiting the resource um, and not to represent the partisan or political interests of their own home government. So this is often touted as groundbreaking in international environmental governance. That does get exaggerated because there's not a a whole lot of models of other countries actually copying it, but it does very much set a model for what the US and Canada will do uh, moving forward, you know, uh, trying to sort of diffuse conflict. And come up with ways to, for both countries, to mutually benefit um, or exploit these resources. So it's partially about protection, but it is about also both countries will get the most economically if they just agree on how to split up a resource or to exploit it. Um, and that's again that, that's part of this trend that helps lead to cooperation more than conflict in the history of the relationship.
0: In your book, you talk extensively about the Trails Matter case. What is it about?
1: So we do see something like the Trail Smelter, starting in the late nineteen twenties, going through the nineteen forties, or in the nineteen thirties as well, into the early nineteen forties. This is a case in Western North America where, in British Columbia, a smelter smoke from a smelter in British Columbia is wafting over the international border into Washington State. This becomes a long drawn out controversy, also involving the IJC um, at times, even though it's seen as being more involved with water, it is involved in air pollution and other cross-border pollution at various times. Um, So this does, after a long period of time, end up um, with with a solution that's often, again, like the Boundary Waters Treaty pointed to as a model for international environmental governance. uh, you know, that sort of brings, brings us up to World War II, which is when we start to see you know, the Great Acceleration, as it's called, after that.
0: So World War II is a pivotal moment in the history of US-Canada relations. And I'd like to quote a phrase from your book. The Second World War wreaked havoc on the global biosphere. In many ways, the greatest ally of the United States and Canada in the fight against fascism was nature. Natural resources brought the two countries together, literally and symbolically. I never thought about the environmental impact of the war effort for Canada and the US. Can you tell us something about it?
1: Right. So uh, Second World War is really sort of a hinge point of this uh, massive upswing or trajectory or hinge point of um, the integration of Canada-US relations, trade and natural resources. So um, both the US and Canada... One of their main contributions if, if not their signal biggest contribution to helping win win the second world war is sort of as the storehouse and producer of tanks and planes and armaments and that's not to discount you know the actual people who went and lost their lives but i mean compared to what was going on <laughs> on the eastern front in russia it's you know it doesn't quite compare but so it's it's uh, the material the b- benefits of the war that are so instrumental um, in that sense, and and that's very much the product of U.S. and Canada erasing their border um, to a great extent during the war. So they sign you know, different uh, defense production sharing agreements and things like this, Hyde Park agreements, too, to ignore, ignore the border as much as possible, get the free flow of resources. So if we're talking tanks, planes, nuclear weapons, uranium from Canada, aluminum from Canada, hydroelectricity from Canada, to, to smelt that and to create all the different minerals, armaments and things like that, because so much of it was taking... Of this production is taking place in the border region, um, in the in the Great Lakes area, with resources going back and forth. And we have the U.S. moving into the northern part of the continent, you know, and Canada uh, sharing you know roads, pipelines, bases, all these things to protect the northern part of the continent. So, um, that you know, it's the Alcan military highway, canal pipeline, things like that. So we start to see this tra- tra- trajectory of integration. And removal of the border, and that stays in place um, after the Second World War, and then we say, see you know the whole whole different suite of radar lines to detect incoming Soviet missiles, aircraft being built in Canada's north. So Canada, I mean, there's certainly sovereignty worries, but Canada is, is you know opening up very many aspects of its territory to the United States physically, as well as economically. So we start to see the uh, big flow of American capital. Into say different sectors, oil and gas sector, things like that, um, into into Canada Dur- during the war too. Both U.S. and Canada led the globe in um, increasing hydroelectric output, and these are already countries leading the globe in hydroelectricity. And these earliest large projects, most of them take place on those border waters, Columbia River, and then in the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence region, as well as others on the east coast and that different parts. So there's a lot of uh, electricity integration going on so those electricity networks and transition networks um those intensify and proliferate uh, in the early cold war period as well as, as this fossil fuel trade and pipelines as i mentioned at this time it's still more the u.s sending fossil fuels to canada um, including coal but late 1940s canada starts to develop its own western oil supply so we start to see the first steps towards Canada becoming a major exporter of fossil fuels to the United States. In fact, a major diplomatic issue over the few decades after World War II will be Canada trying to get, um, well, it's a two-pronged story. It's the U.S. U.S. capital and ownership coming into the Canadian fossil fuel industry, but then Canada also trying to um, export its fossil fuels and get agreements about that or um, exceptions to American oil rules to allow Canadian fossil fuels to to get in. So that becomes a major aspect of diplomacy, as do uh, ever others, several punctuated issues in the early Cold War period um, that have to do with energy. So in 1950, the US and Canada signed the Niagara River Diversion Treaty, which will clear the way for the, uh, the massive expansion of hydroelectricity in the Niagara Falls area. Also in the 1950s, Canada, the U.S. finally signed an agreement on the St. Lawrence Seaway and Power Project, which will, St. Lawrence being the second largest river on the continent, allows the remaking of that for deep draft navigation, as well as building um, up hydroelectric capacity, including what will stand for several decades as the largest transborder hydroelectricity plant um, in the world. So both of those, the St. Lawrence and Niagara developments Went back almost fifty years, so there have been failed agreements in 1929, 1932, and nineteen forty one, to develop some of those resources. Most of the time, it's U.S. Congress uh, was blocking those treaties or agreements from happening. Um, so both the Saint Lawrence and Niagara, I, I call them punctu- the punctuated diplomatic events. That these are you know top issues in Canada-U.S. relations. There's diplomats saying at the time in the nineteen fifties that the Seaway is an even more vexing issue than. The Korean War, for example, in, in, when it comes to Canada-U.S. relations, that speaks to um, these environmental and energy issues becoming the top of the diplomatic file as the major, major things influencing canada relations at the time. And we also start to see lots of other hydroelectric projects coming to fruition around this period. So um, Columbia River Treaty is a very obvious example, but there's also many other cases uh, uh, from east to west as well as new agreements to export electricity back and forth. And then, as I've mentioned, the increasing amount of fossil fuels that's going across the border.
0: Let's talk about hydropower. In your book, you have a chapter called Great Lake Issues, where you discuss some of the challenges um, that the US and Canada had to face building up their hydroelectric capacity. Can you tell us something about it?
1: Um, in the post-World War II period, we see a lot of the big movement on Great Lakes issues. So I'd already mentioned the, the, you know, the St. Lawrence Seaway and Power Project, and that's within those, as well as most other consequential hydroelectric developments, there's this history of hydraulic imperialism that we can call it, um, which is that many of the sites that make for good hydroelectric production are... A, were historically also occupied by First Nations and Indigenous communities. So there's this long history of, in both the U.S. and Canada, uh, of expropriating and stealing land, um, including the territories of the Indigenous communities. So that's certainly yeah. the case with the St. Lawrence um, and Niagara developments. Um, and those are both things I had written books um, about earlier. So these are both. I mean, it is worth pointing out Canada did actually try to build the St. Lawrence Seaway alone. Eventually, and the U.S. basically said, "No, we're not going to allow Canada to be who controls at the you know at the peak of the Cold War. Well, what foreign shipping can can get into the heart of the continent? So there was this. This does point to some of the limits in U.S. Canadian environmental diplomacy, where as much as there's cooperation, there can be conflict, and the U.S. was saying this needs to be a joint project. um, And they figured out ways to stop Canada from proceeding alone until it became a joint project. But both countries were equally um colonialist in the sense of um what they're doing to indigenous communities um so you know in the case of the saint lawrence there's different mohawk communities being directly impacted by the flooding right so we're talking forty thousand acres of land that get flooded as part of the hydroelectric project um you know which is going to displace a lot of communities in the niagara case um the tuscarora Indian nation is what's being affected by the development of uh, the hydroelectric power station on, on the New York State side and then I mean pick a hydroelectric project through you know throw a dart <laughs> throw a dart at the different projects uh, across the border across the continent there's a pretty good chance uh, Most of them were um, harming indigenous communities certainly, certainly that's the case with the Columbia River project that I mentioned. So but all of this is you know agree, ultimately agreements to cooperate to industrialize and develop. The waters um, of the Great Lakes, Saint Lawrence Basin, as well as other border waters. But a consequence of that, of course, is pollution. So at the same within the same time period that they're accelerating all of this mass industrialization through these agreements, people are beginning to worry about uh, ecological impacts of you know the Great Lakes um, area. If you see that as a country, the Great Lakes Basin as, as a, its own sort of country, I mean, it's something like today would be the third largest economy in the world. And it would have been one of the largest economies if it was its own country in the world, you know, back in the mid-20th century. We've got most of the majority of uh, North American manufacturing, steel and automobiles and metals and aluminum and all that, a lot of minerals taking place in all the cities and areas around the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Basin, in part because of the transportation and energy availability that, that they provide. And because you have got these gigantic water bodies that can act as sinks or reservoirs as the, with, you know, dilution being seen as the solution to pollution as the old saying would go. So problem was some of, you know, the chickens were coming home to roost from all those uh, from that history of pollution. So um, just to give some examples in the 1960s, The Cuyahoga River, which flows through Cleveland, Ohio, and into Lake Erie, one of the Great Lakes, caught fire in the late 1960s. That was probably the 13th time it had caught fire since the end of the Second World War. But because of the growing environmental movements in North America, that became a big deal in 1969, whereas it hadn't been previously. Lake Erie, the lake into which... That river was flowing was being declared dead because of eutrophication and using up oxygen, and some of the other lower Great Lakes were having the same problems. And other rivers, the Detroit, the Buffalo, the Rouge River, were also going aflame, which is can be a bit jarring to think of rivers catching fire, but it's because of all the oil and pollution being poured on top. But that speaks to how degraded those environments had become. So there's a big push to start doing something about it. Um, that goes back and forth between the U.S. and Canada negotiating, as well as at the subnational level, Ontario, New York State, and different states. Some preliminary agreements and studies are done. These eventually culminate in what's called the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement in 1972, which will then be superseded by uh, another Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement in 1978. So these are really significant and signal achievements. right? These, are, these aren't actually treaties. They're not binding treaties, but they're bi-national agreements sort of soft law, which is often the case in Canada-U.S. agreements, which even if they're not as binding as treaties, they're still very important. And if people believe in them, then they'll be actually adhered to or enforced to. And so what these agreements did, the first 1972 one applies to the lower Great Lakes, um, but it it is setting out um, policies for both countries to limit pollution, especially nutrient pollution, phosphates and uh, nitrates that are getting into the Great Lakes and causing all these problems, both from municipal waste, industrial waste, as well as agricultural. And so that those work in concert with, say, the 1972 Clean Water Act in the United States and other legislation on the Canadian side, and are pretty quickly effective in reducing the conventional nutrient load, in large part because there's also billions of dollars spent on building treatment plants. So that's part of the reason it's successful. But these are often... These water quality agreements also work through the International Joint Commission and Boundary Waters Treaty they've already mentioned. So these are often seen as, uh, again, pointing to the ways that Canada and the U.S. are have been seen as sort of trendsetters in international environmental governance. That these are two of the international agreements that actually become very influential on a global scale. And then the agreements are modified in 1978 to expand to the rest of the Great Lakes. But they also have to tackle um, the growing awareness of toxic pollutants. And many of the things we now see as big problems. So that's a much harder job. So this 1978 agreement isn't as successful just because it has a much bigger challenge. And so that's what's still in place today. And it has improved certainly the Great Lakes, although we are starting to see a a rebound to a lot, especially with climate change exacerbating or creating new problems, but a rebound of a lot of the initial problems we had back in that time period.
0: As you mentioned, with World War II, the border between Canada and the US dissolved in a way, and so American capital is allowed into Canada to develop uh, new gas fields, new oil fields, and basically the whole fossil fuel industry. By the late 40s, we see that Canada becomes a net exporter of energy towards the United States, how does this relationship play out in the long term?
1: So, I mean, even in the late 19th century, we saw some of the first pipelines between Canada and the US for natural gas and things like that. So there was a little bit of Canadian export, exporting from Southern Ontario of natural gas over say to Detroit and Buffalo, but those supplies um, were used up pretty quickly and it became more, uh, for the first half of the 20th century, it was more the United States sending coal and gas to Canada. In 1941, a pipeline is built from Portland, Maine, to Montreal to uh, send oil, primarily non North American oil, but nonetheless it's coming through the U.S. um, um, to Canada. Um, So, in the mid 20th century, here here, from the Canadian perspective, it's hydroelectricity is, is the bigger Canadian energy export. In fact, so I well, I would say Canada might now be a petro state. It was I call it a hydro state in the book in that. Uh, the the hydroelectric industry shaped Canada's political political economy and relationship with the U.S. to a pretty profound degree. But when you start to see the the discovery of fossil fuel deposits on a large scale in Western Canada in the late 1940s, moving into the 1950s, Canada is now starting to return to exporting oil and natural gas to the United States and now a lot of that industry, as I mentioned, is developed you know, through Standard Oil and U.S. companies because they had the expertise, the technologies, and the capital. Um, and, I mean, this is a perennial debate in Canada. Do we want quicker economic development, say, for oil, um, by bringing in American, by bringing in Americans and giving up some sovereignty? So it's sort of a, do we want prosperity now versus uh, sacrificing some sovereignty? So that that's a perennial debate. And for the most part, Canada has chosen the Bring in, bring in American capital and expertise or ownership in order for prosperity. Now, um, with the result, too, those have tend to have a vested interest in sending, if they're American companies, sending that back to the United States. Now, um, so there's a, a nationalist movement in Canada that will will be worried about that. Certainly, that tends more often to be a minority. More more are willing within the politicians and the elite and business classes. Most are willing to choose integration with the United States.
0: One of the many things I learned reading your book is the story of the national energy program of the Pierre Trudeau government. Can you tell us something about it?
1: Sure. So that's coming out of of that nationalist response, um, because what I, another surprising thing was, even in the 50s and 60s, Canada, uh, a top issue between Canada US becomes as the U.S. is trying to keep out foreign oil to protect its own producers. Canada is trying to negotiate exemptions um, because it wants to send its oil and natural uh, and fossil fuels to the United States. So that becomes a big diplomatic issue of Canada trying to negotiate exemptions. So in many cases, even though sometimes we think of nowadays, and I tend to I can be a Canadian nationalist too. Sometimes seeing this integration with the U.S. as sort of a Faustian bargain for Canada. It's, bringing prosperity but what's being given up um in, in the long term um but there there is a you know a strong nationalist response to this but what is actually somewhat surprising is more often it was actually Canadian officials diplomats business leaders arguing for the US please let in Canadian gas and oil trying to convince the Americans to let it in rather than the Americans swooping in and saying give us all your oil and gas so it is there there is some Qualifications that need to be made to that. Nonetheless, it's generating a nationalist response. It's part of other factors, you know, the Vietnam War, the U.S. civil rights movement, or, or lack thereof. Uh, Canada is really starting to go in its different direction because, as much as we think of Canada as more of a welfare state, social welfare state, the U.S. had had more progressive policies up to the nineteen you know sixties than had Canada in terms of um, social welfare and, and pensions, and so Canada. To oversimplify seems to sort of make a choice towards it's going to to differentiate itself in the United States not the you know the United States can pay the bigger cost of protecting the continent and that money instead of being put into defense and armies Canada can invest into social welfare state um, so I mean it's a lot more complicated than that but there sort of seems to be a choice of Canada uh, wanting to continue to benefit from the. US umbrella but also, wanting to differentiate itself as a different type of country. So I think this reaction against um, the way energy is being used and traded is part of that. So so this is where, uh, we, again, as I was alluding to, we start seeing with the Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau government, Trudeau government going into the 1960s, some reaction to, um, you know, we've got the energy crises going on in the United States. Um, OPEC, embargoes, um, and and those sorts of things. So Canada, after trying to negotiate exemptions under things like the mandatory oil import programs in the 1960s, um, is now in the 1970s starting to go a different direction and trying, wanting to potentially keep some of the uh, oil for itself and try to reduce American investment and ownership within the fossil fuel sector, as well as other sectors of the Canadian uh, economy. So on the one hand, we have had the, you know, the auto pact happening in the mid-1960s, increasing integration in that way, but it's very, that's sort of the end of maybe the 1970s and at the end of its golden age of sort of unalloyed integration and trade without much resistance. And so now we're starting to see back and forth with the 1970s where Canada is looking at keeping some of its... Uh, energy sources and reducing it to the United States rather than seeking out American markets for it. But that'll be something that'll go back and forth in in ensuing decades.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this tendency, this willingness to preserve some form of Canadian autonomy in their relationship doesn't last very long. And I'm thinking about Uh, KUFTA, the first iteration of the Canadian-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, which uh, takes place in the late 80s. And speaking of this, I was wondering if you could talk about some of the border flows, uh, not just um, in the realm of energy, but also other commodities.
1: Right. So part of what Trudeau had tried to do in 1970s, was create uh, you know a nationalized uh, fossil fuel company, Petro Canada, um, and then 1980 is when it actually announces the National Energy Program again to try to increase domestic control over the fossil fuel industry and the Canadianization of uh, fossil fuels and the ownership of the industry. But he himself had gone back and forth on increasing energy integration with the United States versus versus decreasing, um, and then. Uh, that uh, that impulse towards increasing um, is, very, is picked up on by the government, one of the governments that follows the Trudeau period. So that's the Brian Mulroney Progressive Conservative. So he's um, very much an adherent to free trade, not only in fossil fuels, but in most things. So you get the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement in 1988, um, which uh, across a whole range of Minerals and natural goods and different types of resources. This is sort of entrenching a lot of what had been increasing throughout the Cold War period, and then it had gone you know backwards to some extent in certain sectors um, during the Trudeau government. So you, you start to see uh, all, uh, with this agreement in 1988. It's going to lead then to 1994 to a uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, which also uh, includes Mexico. And then that's also going to, in just recent years, nowadays has been uh, renegotiated sort of a NAFTA 2.0 with a new agreement. So, this is, you know, drastically increasing the free flow of goods across the border, either resources themselves or resources that have been tra- tra- transferred into goods. So, this increases the prosperity and economic integration of Canada and the United States. But I mean, I would argue that free trade in general is pretty horrible for. The environment and for ecologies right so this is going to just increase it's going to increase prosperity in many in many ways but also increase environmental impacts there's also other downsides i think that's what we even some of the trump movement i think is a reaction against free trade and i'll admit i have because of seeing the environmental impacts of it even though i'm someone who is able to come into canada under uh, a NAFTA visa. Originally, it was easy for me to get a job in the United States because of that. So I'm a product of that. Um, but I also have you know a lot of reservations about what free trade does um, from an ecological, biodiversity, and, and climate perspective too. So these free trade agreements do also include some side agreements about environmental issues because there are worries that it'll lead to the that free trade in water, especially for the Great Lakes region, is a paramount concern that once water becomes classified under these agreements as a commodity, then there'll be no legal way to stop the mass exportation of water, whether that's by tanker or by, you know, water, by pipe sending water to the U.S. southwest or somewhere like that, which are, of course, undergoing water scarcity problems for, for much of this period. 1940s forward. In the post-World War II era, we also start to see air pollution becoming an issue in the Great Lakes basins, especially in from Michigan to Ontario, back and forth in the Sarnia, Port Huron region and the Detroit-Windsor region. So we've got a lot of, you know, right, the Sarnia area is Canada's Chemical Valley where a lot of petrochemicals are built right along a border or manufactured right along a border water. Detroit's a major, you know, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, as um, the, the hub of the global auto industry, so a lot of production going on there. But so, you, along with water pollution, you're seeing air pollution move across the border in both directions. So there starts to be complaints about that, bilateral studies and investigations, um, but um, that gets sort of not much is done until uh, the ni- late nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. So we start to see globally other. Other worries, um, some of which transcend just U.S.-Canada diplomatic relationship, but some of the early seeds of climate change, the ozone layer, sort of international agreements about air, and also acid rain is becoming a big issue. And we can sort of fold that in here because in the 1980s, acid acid rain goes essentially from something no one had ever heard of to the top issue in all of Canada-U.S. relations by later in the 1980s. And so we're we're seeing – we see – uh Canada-U and the United States air quality agreement uh, get signed um, in 1991. So Canada and the Mulroney government had been pretty strong in trying to ink that agreement, in large part because it's a bigger problem of on the U.S. side of the Great Lakes, especially air pollution moving northward into Canada, into Ontario. So the, Canada is very much pushing for some type of bilateral agreement, while other international agreements to address some of this are also Taking place, but the Reagan government in the United States has, you know, no interest in environmental regulation and is just not willing to go anywhere on that. They're not even necessarily the president's not even necessarily buying into the basic science of acid rain or air pollution or climate change. Once George Bush Senior replaces Reagan, then there's some quicker movement. So we do see a Canada United States air quality agreement that echoes many aspects of the Great Lakes water quality agreements. One of the echoes being that this agreement is fairly successful in reducing the the different pollutants, um, such as SO2, that are moving across the border. But part of the reason is, like the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreements, because domestic legislation changes um, pollution outputs. um, And that's that investing of money um, and regulation is probably the big reason this international agreement is able to have... Uh, a somewhat salient effect, but so acid rain is also r- reduced to to a large large degree so again, these are pretty important issues they're joining in you know around the same time as some of these free trade agreements that we've talked about. There's also law of the sea issues that have been going on since the nineteen fifties that have a bilateral angle to them um as well as pipelines more and more fossil fuel pipelines are coming on, on stream, as well as the North and the Arctic is becoming, a, a, a number of a, different events are taking place that are uh, complicating and becoming factors of conflict. Somewhat in distinction to these different agreements to actually reduce pollution across the bor- a, a border, which is to be fair unique within a global context. And most other countries have, as much as many of these agreements take decades um, to happen, um, at least they do happen, which is now is the case right, with many other countries sharing uh, border, border waters or other pollutants going, going across the border. And we also start to see other agreements, uh, we have fish agreements. Fish stopped being the top bilateral issue like they had been in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But throughout the Cold War, there's a whole host of East Coast, West Coast and Great Lakes fisheries agreements to try to conserve and sustain fish stocks. Often, again, with a, with a motivation maybe for maximum sustainable yield, which is flawed in many cases. But at least co- environmental cooperation across the border is happening.
0: Speaking of fish, you start your book with a quotation from Kissinger talking to his Canadian counterpart. And here I quote from your book, I hope you've not come to talk to me about the sex life of the salmon. And that's um, a funny story, but it also shows the different sets of priorities the two administration had.
1: So, yeah, that that Kissinger quote about the sex life of the salmon, you know, it's an amusing anecdote um, and a good way to bring, bring up some themes. And that's where it's actually important because it points to, in addition to being an interesting sort of anecdote, is that it points to a lot of important themes within the book. So aside from the fact, you know, issues like fisheries that are, become background issues seem unimportant, but it's the fact that the U.S. and Canada are constantly, perpetually, and permanently always negotiating about, even if they don't get big press or don't become big diplomatic crises, it's always negotiating constantly about those environmental issues that sort of sets the tenor of the Canada-U.S. relationship and establishes that So those are so vitally important because they provide the balance or balanced when the environmental crises or, or sorry, sorry. When diplomatic crises do happen, although I should say that, as I've been trying to point out, often it is environmental issues and energy issues that become the diplomatic crises, so to speak, as well. But as you pointed out, with Kissinger, we see him as grand strategy, shell diplomacy. So part of the focus of the book is the is I use the term natural natural security, to argue that what may turn out to be most important in history of Canada-US relations is things like fisheries. Um, Other things that were ignored at the time, because nowadays, you know, the actual security of North Americans is probably going to be threatened much more by fish stocks dying off and loss of species and biodiversity and climate change and poison water. So our our actual security, which we thought of as just external forces and armies traditionally, is, is much more likely to be threatened by environmental and energy issues when you see fossil fuels contributing to climate change and climate emissions. So. Part of the argument of the book is that what will turn out to be of longer-term significance is what many of the diplomats and thus historians at the time were were ignoring as well as what was important. Um, So I I think it really speaks to some of those issues. So, I mean, climate change is a great example of that. Fossil fuel pipelines became, when they were proliferating in the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st century, weren't very controversial. between Canada and the United States of course in the last few decades keystone xl different pipelines have become very controversial and that's because of their link to climate change which itself has become an issue in uh Canada US relations yeah i mean i think it's because these pipelines are going to be bringing tar sands oil uh, to the united states so and any time you build a pipeline, that's basically ensuring for the company to get its money back that it's going to be pumping oil for another 40 years or so. So that's seen as entrenching more dependence on that. So pipelines become sort of a line in the sand, so to speak, of where we can resist some of that. So that's when you start to see pipelines, instead of something that barely makes the news, um, become a big issue of both domestic and international controversy. And, of course, climate change is that as well. So Canada, with the Mulroney government, was one of of the countries pushing for international agreements on ozone layer and climate change and, and things like that. So it was actually one of the earlier proponents. Ironically, then Canada becomes one of the great villains, not only in terms of what it produces and the emissions it directly and indirectly causes, but later on Especially with the Harper government, more or less trying to sabotage United, you know, United Nations and international agreements through the Paris Climate Accords and things like that. So Canada goes from being uh, an early proponent of some type of international agreement to then becoming, you know, <laughs> an obstacle to those. So these are seen as, you know, multilateral international things. But Canada's international stance, I guess, very much tied to bilateral issues in Canada-U.S. relations because it's realizing that so much of the economy becomes driven by Canadian exports of fossil fuels um, and the building of these pipelines. So Canada starts to lose interest, of course, in limiting itself in that way, and especially because the U.S. is also being, at the time, one of the major obstacles to international climate agreements. So Canada is basing its position often on the United States saying, well, if the U.S. is is going to sign on to these climate accords, what reason would we have to do that? Just going to be shooting ourselves in the foot. So the the, the sort of climate history has a pretty uh, key aspect within bilateral relations as well.
0: Professor McFarlane, I want to thank you for this wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed reading Naturalize and even more so, discussing it with you. Before we say bye, I wanted to ask you, what are you working on at the moment? Um, What is next in the pipeline? Speaking of pipelines.
1: Right. I I do, although this one actually does have some pipelines in it too, but the uh, book that I'm just finishing and which will be released in, I believe, the first half of 2024, it's Environmental History of Lake Ontario. So again, it's carrying on the transborder themes of of this book, but a deep dive into just one of the Great Lakes and how the transnational aspects, which includes fossil fuel pipelines, but also, yeah, Great Lakes Water Quality Agreements, fisheries, all, all these other things that we've talked about, how that plays out within the context of one specific Great Lake.
0: Great. I'm looking forward to reading it and hopefully presenting it again on the New Books Network. Professor McFarlane, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me and for the opportunity to talk about Natural